Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And this week I speak with Katie Burrell, the comedian, filmmaker, influencer, professional, leisure athlete, quote unquote, one of the most influential voices in modern winter sports culture, Katie Burrell, who is also the star and co-writer and director of the film Week Layers, which is now out on VOD. When this film came across my desk top, I guess it was on the computer, I watched the trailer and I was immediately in. I am so here for that sort of specific microculture comedy that this is. Week Layers is a comedy set in Tahoe, where I grew up going to the snow, and it follows these three friends, their party-loving best friends, who get evicted from their house situation, their rental in this small ski town, and they set out to win a ski movie competition because the prize money will cover their rent, but they'll have to beat out professional skiers and filmmakers and their own party tendencies, and it's a hilarious comedy that celebrates mountain town culture and takes on this sort of traditionally male-dominated ski industry in a hilarious way. And on top of it, Katie was just such a joy to speak with. Not only was this her first time directing, but I think she also was very transparent about the process of putting together a team that she was able to make this with and that she relied on to make it with, which I think is very refreshing to hear. I think so So often we hear from directors who are, of course, you know, talking about their heads of departments and how much they love them, but they're, you know, not always highlighting the importance of being able to rely on and trust your team, especially when you're also in front of the camera, which I just can't believe she was able to pull off. The film, which I recommend watching either before you listen to this interview or as soon as you finish, is available now on VOD. One other thing, we had trouble with our podcast recording platform. So we ended up moving to Skype. So I apologize if the audio is a little bit off this time. It's a problem that we are addressing via our hosting platform, Riverside, via Chrome. But we didn't have time to fix it in the moment. So without further ado, here's my interview with Katie Burrell via Skype. Town's so busy because the hot laps. The ski movie competition. Literally anyone in the industry that matters. All in the same place, competing to make the best ski movie in 72 hours. Oh, cool. Good luck. No, I'm not in it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Thank you so much for joining us on the No Film School podcast. We're thrilled to have you and congrats on the film. Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. Oh, yay. Well, I loved your movie and I loved the like specificity of it because like I, I, like I was mentioning, I grew up skiing in Tahoe and having like cool crushes on all the people who like were good and like made it look <laughs> like an effortless thing. And meanwhile, I'm Tomahawk rolling down the mountain. <laughs> I, so I hear that you have just sort of wrapped up a a ski town theatrical tour of Weak Layers. How how was that? It was so much fun. It was, yeah, it was really incredible to be able to show the movie to the audiences it was originally intended for. I mean, we were really excited to have a theatrical in 100 theaters across the US and 25 in Canada. But the most exciting ones were the ones where it was ski town audiences. So the Crested Butte Theater, the Majestic and the Art House in Tahoe and, mm-hmm. you know, those, the, the Santa Fe, you, you know, these, these clusters of ski communities across the, the country and in Canada as well, Revelstoke and, and Whistler. And it, it was just, the, they get the inside baseball of the movie yes. more so than anywhere else. I mean, we showed, we screened in LA, we screened in New York and, and people liked the movie for, you know, the friendship buddy comedy and the, the love story and the villain, you know, and just the visuals of it are fun for people who, you know, fancy themselves a skier, but maybe ski like, you know, three, four times a year. Yeah. But, but the people that get the inside baseball fact really love the the layers of the comedy as well. And it's really fun to share with them. What I, I think there's like so much power in like going niche, going into like what following your bliss essentially, which I think like that is so just apparent and present and like vibrating throughout the film is like the 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 fact that it's a world that like you love and you're a part of and you know ultimately like is celebrated so much in in the movie. But the fact that like you, people still can get a lot of joy out of watching a film that's like, you know, they don't get the inside joke. They don't get the like, spec- the specificity because it's still a love story. It's still a friendship story. It's still a this. Like there's so much that you can still hang your hat on. Yeah, totally. I mean, ultimately it's like, I would say at the center of it, it's a personal growth story, yeah. which is, you know, not specific to the ski industry or to skiing or ski culture. But the environment that it lives in was gave it so much gave gave me so many things that I could pull out of my own lived experience. Yeah, Have, yeah, you know, in the writing process and when we were putting it together, I lived in ski towns after university for four years, and then you know was in and out of Vancouver doing film work and whatnot, but kept finding myself back in ski towns and in ski culture, and it it is so unique and. And there are so many, <laughs> I don't know, elements in weak layers that felt so relevant and real to my own life that it was sort of cathartic in a way to have them, you know, come out in the film. But I was militant on set about making sure that it felt like it was a a Hollywood movie, you know, something yeah. that could reach into the mainstream, hopefully, fingers crossed. But that anyone that was a core skier or snowboarder would watch it and not ever be taken out of the story yes. because of a little detail that was that would just never fly if an actual 
ski film crew was running the show. So you go to a Warren Miller movie or you go to a TGR MSP, like ski porn style movie, for example, and the pros look so cool. You know, that effortless factor, Mm -hmm. like the way that they style their wardrobe, the way their ski kits, the way that they ski, the ways that ski skiing has like fashion eras and it has like trends and even just how people are skiing. And so to try to bridge that into, you know, a narrative Hollywood style movie, we kept saying it has to feel like it came from, it was a Hollywood movie, Hollywood movie from ski culture. Not that Hollywood tried to make another movie for skiing. Yes. Yeah. Because in those movies, people are always carrying their skis upside down. They have braids. Like nobody wears braids. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, stuff, I wore braids like trying to be the cool, try like, but as an outsider, as an outsider, as a child. And (laughs) really, really, really trying hard at Diamond Peak in Tahoe. Uh, So I I actually want to hear specifically about the things that drive you nuts in movies when you see people skiing, like the upside down skis, like the equivalent of, and I always like talk to my partner about this because I used to work in corporate America when people are like, you know, drop a folder of papers on a desk and say, get it to me by morning. I'm like, nobody says that and nobody puts files on desks like that. So like what are the things that drive you insane when you see them in a movie? Okay. So one is a full face of makeup on a woman who's supposed to be like a badass skier. You know, mascara, sure. But the rest of your makeup is just going to rub on the inside of your goggles. It's going to smear. It's going to get wet. So no, I was like, this is a no makeup makeup set. If you're doing mascara, do it on the uh, on the upside of the eyelashes so uh-huh. that they like don't get smeared on the bottom of your eyelid. Yeah. The other one is starting a ski or action sequence with the click in, click, 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 click into right. the bindings. And then we're queuing into an action sequence. I was like, no, this needs to flow out of like some sort of narrative element that j- doesn't feel like, okay, bring in the stunt doubles. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, exactly. <laughs> and then the other one is light. So if you're having like a narrative or dialogue moment and then you're queuing out to an action sequence, it has to look like it's the same freaking day mm-hmm. at, at the very least, you know? And, and th- there was there's also just, there's an awareness around moving in the backcountry that a lot of film crews in Hollywood or I don't want to like sewer Hollywood or LA or whatever, but it's like, the the knowledge base in moving in the backcountry requires certain you know safety and backpacks with gear and you know your shovel your probe your transceiver all this kind of stuff and it was just very important to me that I could sign off on mm-hmm. like not having a ski sequence in in bounds that looks in bounds at a resort right after we've established that maybe these this skiing is happening in the backcountry yeah. and being able to differentiate between those two things and all of those pieces you know would take someone out of the story yeah even down to Gabe who, Gabe Paul who's like the character in the movie he's the most famous hottest skier in the world yeah. kind of a thing the, the, he's been in the game forever right he's like the salty guy and the actor who played him Evan Jonakite is not a skier and uh. so you know, Evan would pop his goggles up on the top of his helmet because Ryan DeFranco, our DP, was like trying not to have reflection. Right. But right. no pro skier in no pro skier would ever put their goggles up on the top of the helmet. Right. And I'm like, right. all of a sudden, you look like a you look like an amateur. You do not look like a, yeah. 
the biggest noob. You do not look even remotely cool anymore. And I don't know why that little inch difference of where the goggles are positioned was such a factor, but it was. I was constant. I would be like, do not touch anything we have done to your wardrobe before you're ready to roll. And it was really interesting also working with Chelsea and Jaden, who played Tina and Lucy, because, you know, coming from their backgrounds as athletes. So Chelsea's an ex-dancer and Mm -hmm. she had this poise and elegance as a result of being a ballerina that we were trying to sort of help her unlearn, but also mold into, you're an ex-Olympic ski racer. There's a level of discipline and athleticism just build your structure, your system, but how do you shift out of that elegance and into that, Mm -hmm. into making it more aggressive or, you know, that, so there's all these little details that if, if people don't, if the, if female skiers in particular in ski movies from the past don't look like they're built for the cold enough or like yeah. can hand, like can t- built to take a hit, you know, you got to have a sort of like yeah. energy in your body. That's very like, I can take a hit. Like I'm, I'm strong yeah. and I'm, I'm not, I'm not delicate in this environment. And then right. I'll just say like, finally, not to make it, you know, not to be political, but in a lot of ski movies, like narrative ski movies from the past, women have been props. Yeah. You know, they've, they've been accessories and that was not the case in weak, weak layers. They're the center of the story. Right. Right. So, but yeah, that's, that's what drives me crazy probably more than anything. The, the props, the women as props in ski movies. Yes, absolutely. And, and in those like impossibly tight outfits that I'm just like, Hmm does resemble what my dad wore in the 80s and throughout only in the last five years. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it felt very, it just, it there was this like flawless is not the word, but flowing authenticity to that and you wearing many hats, but all the hats in this film had to build this world and build this in a believable way. I want to talk about casting in particular because you did a really good job casting people who I just assumed were in or adjacent to this world. It's very surprising to hear that they, that that wasn't the case. How were you looking for that that sturdiness? And in addition to like everything from like the friend chemistry to the romantic chemistry, like how how did you sort of test that out, especially like putting yourself in the middle of it all to like be that anchor for the story? We didn't have a lot of time when it came to casting to do... Well, we didn't have time or resources to do screen tests or chemistry reads or any of that kind of stuff. It really was just looking at actors who we felt so strongly in either their initial audition or a callback mm-hmm. that they they could plug in to this yeah. to the ultimate fabric of it and show up and be able to bring that uniqueness. And actually in all of the... In, in all of the of that core cast, there was a uniqueness that came through in each of them that I felt like you could plug this in with this, with this, with these other uniquenesses and, and it feel like a really sort of colorful and diverse and interesting cast to, to play off of each other. We had an incredible casting director, Suzanne Scheel, who, I mean, filtered through the, those first rounds of auditions and, and put, you know, it was a spoils of riches or whatever that expression is yeah. watching these auditions. And for me, as a first-time director, you're just like already shocked and unbelievably excited that anyone's even like engaging with your work, like yeah. let alone nailing an audition, you know? But in those, in that process, just the way, I mean, Jaden Wong, we we still talk about her audition. Just uh-huh. 
the the energy that she brought in, the difference of how she read for Lucy. And I kick I I, I like reflect back on it. And I wrote something in the actor in the like cast breakdown where I said, our character breakdown where I said like stereotypically hot. Mm-hmm. And what I and what I meant by that, and it trips so many of the actors up, I think, but because what I meant was so comfortable within herself that she's magnetic. Mm. And I don't know why I put stereotypically hot. Like I meant like hot girl, like that energy, you know? And I had a really interesting conversation with Jaden about it after the fact, just after I saw her first, after I saw her read, because she was like, I'm really hung up on this. And I was like, wait, this is a total oversight on my part. And I wonder how many other people got hung up on it. And then we had this really you know, interesting conversation about what hot means for the Lucy character. Right. And it was really just about being so blinders on in your own good time girl kind of nature that yeah. the rest of the world kind of falls away. And it's not really about like judgment from others or, or external validation for her. It's more about just her being, you know, I mean, sort of problematically so like in her own deep avoidance of self that she yeah. can, you know, she can be this funny man. And She's a guy's girl in so many ways. With that particular character, and and I'm curious what stuck out in the audition. And I I had a similar experience. Like I'm in post on my first feature, and there's a character who is sort of like I'd say number four in the screen screen time, an expat living on this island in Panama, where again I'm like so many specificities are based off of my own experience living there. But this when we were doing auditioning, we had like a spoil of riches of like talented women coming out and reading for this role of Kiki. And like the start of the scene is she goes to the main character and she asks her if she hates herself. And, Mm. and like so many of the choices that people made were like kind of this like mean girl bitchy thing. Yeah. It was like, I was like, what did I do wrong in the casting or in the way that I set them up for, for even reading the sides and and then I ultimately cast somebody who like auditioned ironically for another role as yeah. well and came from it from such a place of love and and curiosity. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is exactly what this character is doing. She's trying to connect with this person. And it was very, it just, it, it's so interesting to see how like similar-ish choices are made. And then when somebody makes something different, you're like, wow, this is you just unlocked something. And so I'm curious, like what happened in, in Jaden's audition that really stuck with you? Two things. One, I think what I was saying about the stereotypically hot thing, I think a lot of women interpreted that in, unfortunately, like the male gaze being so deeply embedded in mm-hmm. us and we've created our own female male gaze, you know? So yeah. they were playing it sex sexy or they yeah. were playing it flirty. Yeah. And Jaden played it like she couldn't give a shit if anyone yes. ever noticed her. She just had information to get across that yeah. felt like it was burning for her to get that information across because she was so passionate about what she was saying. And mm-hmm. that is like, that be, that was hot. That was yeah. attractive. You know, that was yes. so, so inarguably cool. Like the cool factor was just oozing out of her. There's also a line I had in the sides that I had everyone audition or read for that audition that said, I chambered my rifle. And she was the only person who chambered her rifle properly. And I I asked her, I was like, are you a hunter? Like, you know, 
the, the character is a hunter. I was like, are you a hunter? It came so naturally. No, I go- no, I Googled how to chamber a rifle. And I was like, that little detail, all of a sudden she was embodying how a hunter would talk about this moment yeah. that I was asking, asking to see, yeah. you know? And, and I think that, and I, I do think that I boned people accidentally with the way that I wrote that character out. And I was probably just going too fast in the moment when I, when I was putting that information down yeah. because, and, but Jaden interpreted it in a way that was what I meant. It was like, yeah. she read, she read the character's mind. She read my mind and she, read, she saw through that element in the, in her read of it. And, and then I, I don't know, I, I will also say the, the, the other one was Neil Bledsoe who read for Dane. And I think it's tricky as a man, white man right now to, mm-hmm. um, lean fully into that kind of a role that is so misogynistic and such a villain and so condescending, you know, and, and Neil is like an incredible person. He's an, yeah. he, you know, he's, he's worked in the great American family for so long in Hallmark films. And he recently stepped away from them because, and, and deleted all of his social media because he, he publicly went on record to say he wouldn't do any more of those kind of movies until same mm. marriages were represented in them. And I so he's, wow. he, I mean, he's played like the Prince of Moldovia, the Prince of Geno, like he's such princes. a professionally handsome guy and, but he's, he's an ally really. And he, so for him to lean into a character like Dane Blake just goes to show how um, committed he was to just that character and that role. And the way he read it, he was, it was just dripping with sarcasm in like this incredibly facetious way where for me as like a deep lover of satire, there was just like, there was two elements or two layers of him going on both as a performer and also this like facetious sort of satirical element where I was just like, he understands this character's position within the context of this greater sort of microcosm, mm-hmm. you know, for the the ski industry, like representing like society at large, if you will. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe I'm being too heady. I don't know. But no, he, no, no. It, it's such a like fine line to walk a- across the board. And like, and, and I think that to your point, it be it would be so easy to for that character to be, be almost like like a, a stereotype of itself and just be flat and boring and like not without nuance. Um, totally. But it is it, because he's playing it with like that awareness, but also not like in a way that is too far to the side that like probably would also alienate people. Mm-hmm. Be like, oh, well now it's like making, like it's a, if you, I think if you're playing everyone and and I thought that performance in particular was nuanced because like, it seems like it's, Bedded in deep insecurity at the end of the day, which is why there's this over, over correcting towards, you know, being, you know, an asshole. Totally. Like, but that, but it's because it's like understanding the layers and understanding where, where that's coming from versus like just coming in and be like, no, I'm a dick asshole. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the antagonist. I'm the antagonist. Look out. Like I'm the villain. Look out. He was like, I'm the villain, but I'm deeply crippled by my own position in life and my insecurity. And you end up kind of feeling sorry for him, but you like him while he's being such a victim because you're like, you're like, I've gotten drunk and like fully been hit on by this kind of guy before. And once we kind of got into it, I was kind of like, oh, you're not a bad person. Do you know what I mean? Yes, like, yes. Well, I feel like, sad for you. I, I feel, feel sad, sad for you. I feel sad I mean, for that, you. For, I know you said like, this is a film that was made so it could exist in this Hollywood business 
but like it's specific to the community. But like, I'm like that to me, there's like so many people within Hollywood who remind me Mm. of that. And like coming from like, we were at Sundance talking to a bunch of filmmakers and my favorite takeaway was like, oh, the kind people are having success. Yay. But then you meet people at parties and there's that like slimy assholiness. And I, and I just like, want to remind our listeners and myself that like if you meet those people in the wild and you're not vibing with them that's totally okay and, yeah. and you don't have to you don't you have don't to, have to you work with create them your own space and create your own community within a community totally actually i i remember talking to evan about this when when he was putting together gabe because he's not being a skier but trying to find a parallel in his own life and having worked in hollywood for you know 20 years yeah he was like I know the Dane Blake character. I know the guy that's used me to get somewhere, like uses me to yes. get somewhere else for his own game, but makes it look like it's for me. You know, it's it's not just happening in the ski industry. I think there were there were like parallels that all of that core crew, all sorry, all of that core cast were, were taking from their own lives as actors yeah. in Hollywood, you know? And then it, originally we had, we had talked about, is there a way that we can cast pro skiers and skiers and people in the ski community that might be able to deliver a line in a way that would keep it so niche and so specific to that community. And, and, and we made a choice that that core cast really had to be trained actors because I mean, I look at, I look at Evan's performance in particular, like there is an element of, there's an element of like, will they, won't they, the get the girl, get the guy at the end of it all. That yeah. if there wasn't like a groundedness in like this salty experience mm-hmm. that Evan brings through, it would have, it could have come across so cheesy. Yes. And Absolutely. instead it's like heartwarming and fun and kind of like, and funny and, and relatable. Yeah. And I think it's because he brought so much of, like he brought so much reality into that role. And yeah, yeah. anyway, I, I was I was blown away by the cast every day. Like just the way they showed up. It's not easy shooting in the freezing cold. Yes, let's talk in- about that. Let's talk about the production and, and the fact that you were shooting all winter, it, I assume. How long, how long was the shoot? It was six weeks. We had a week off in the, after the first 10 days because we had like, we went into overnights on the week we came back after the week off. Oh my gosh. Um, but it, it was hardcore, but we, it was six weeks total. I was there for three weeks in advance of that for prep. And it was like bare, like yeah. ground, no, no snow, blue skies, California. Oh. Got there on October 15th. And literally like the, the morning of the tech scout, which was four days before we went to camera, it it was just dumping and it was like a proper snow globe. And Jeff Curry, our, our, our head production designer, he had driven to LA to pick up $15,000 worth of snow blankets Uh and they never came out of the van. Like never never came out of the cube van because it started snowing and it did, well, it didn't stop in Tahoe last winter in 2022, Yeah, yeah. It's like their largest or highest record-breaking snowfall on record or whatever the expression is in history. Like I, I want to say it was wild. Yeah. And it, it literally was like a horseshoe up our butts. Cause it was like, yeah. honestly, it would like snow all night, wake up to blue skies. And then we would be like, okay, we're shooting all this stuff that has blue skies. Like Thursday better be blue skies. Cause that scene connects to this one. Yeah. It would be like gray bird on the Wednesday and on the Thursday, 
blue skies after like snowing again. So it looked the exact, we were like, what wow. the hell? Like wow. I, I literally burst into tears on the final day of, or the day after we wrapped this woman was interviewing me for outside magazine, uh-huh. Megan Michelson. And she was like, do you, how do you feel? Can you believe the weather? And I, I just started crying. Cause I was like, that was, that was otherworldly. Like that, yeah. there was somebody in the upper realm pulling strings there. Yes, like, yes. You got, I don't know, Uller, like the people that have left us from the ski community, like in, I was just like, there was something else going on there. Cause that was not normal. Yeah. The way that the, the weather worked for us. But I, I will say like, there, there's a certain element that, that, or a certain difficulty that, that is added to making these kind of movies because of the outside factor and right. out the, the outdoors factor and people who are used to shooting in on sets inside and in controlled environments, you're, you're really tested when yeah. you have to, to dress differently. You have to be prepared for, you know, 12 hours in different kind of weather, especially if it's an overnight, you have to like, you have to be head of the light all the time yes. because it's, it changes so dramatically and so rapidly in those kind of environments. And twilight, yeah. twilight is literally like 30 minutes in, or, and it gets shorter as November yeah. goes on. Right. Yeah. So we had a scene where we got bu- pushed and pushed and pushed and we had to shoot a scene in in two takes because it was supposed to be a twilight scene and it's, yeah. you know, and people are, the the cold factor is huge. And as someone who runs cold naturally, like yeah. the, irri- the irritability factor goes through the roof when you get yeah. cold and the focus goes like okay. immediately, immediately. And I'm not talking about like camera equipment. I'm talking, yes, yes. you know what I mean? Like, cause that's gear and managing gear and that kind of, you know, moving through the mountains and stuff Yeah, on resort is a, a whole other game as well, but, and a whole other skill set as well. But, yeah. but just the focus for, a scene like we, we shot a scene in the dark in the night in the wind you know our our key grip is literally standing on the light because it was so windy that it was uh-huh. just falling over oh my gosh. yeah another like another member of our genie team ruda she was like you can, it's actually like an error in the movie but she's like huddled in the back like <laughs> holding a piece of lighting equipment down because it was so windy and we're supposed to be like in our sweatsuits so we're in our sweatsuits. We're in like very little clothing. Yeah. We're having this argument and like, you you know, you're shooting it three different ways or, and it's just, everyone needs the, the time that gets eaten up by getting actors back into cars to warm them up, getting actors yes. back by a heater to warm them up, remember their lines and deliver them without just being like thinking about their survival, frankly. Yeah. Like, will I make it through not this monologue, but this night, this, this take. How did you lead people in that environment? Like being in front of the camera, directing, like what was the thing that you kept hanging on to or getting people to hang on to? Because that sounds, I feel like we shot inverse movies, but mine was like in the, in the tropics at the equator with right. bugs biting you and, right. and everyone's swelling up and everyone's like getting stomach issues, but like same and like we're moving in boats like on around right. these islands. But it's like the, the things you don't think about, including like, how long does it take to move an actor to a bathroom when we're shooting on an island where you have to walk through the jungle to get there? And like yeah. that stuff, it, it, that minutia will slow you down. And mm-hmm. like, and also in heat, the focus goes immediately. People get really tired. And so like, mm-hmm. I, I like am still reflecting on how did I keep people together? And sometimes I'm like, I could have done a better job. So like, what was your, 
or especially in those like dark nights, cold yeah. nights with the blowing wind? Like, how did you keep morale up? I mean, I will, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think in, I think part of it was I was over the moon that mm-hmm. this was happening. Yeah. And I was beside myself that this was, that had, this had come together really. Yeah. And so I think that there was an element of sort of infectious excitement around being a part of this and being a part of my excitement. It, it seemed like the te- like it seemed like my team really like plugged into into that in a way. And I, I I'm so grateful for it. But I, I was having the best time all of yes. the time. Really, like there, there were a handful of moments where I was like you know, having like small breakdowns, one of them being where we had the wet hair and the robes and we're crossing the parking lot in the freezing cold. But for the most part, I was like, this is insane that this is is even happening. This is a miracle. And so we had these kind of like little bits, you know, almost amongst the team where I had a bit with the DP, Ryan DeFranco, who I'm obsessed with, but I would, if it was like going so badly, I'd be like, we're having a good time, having yeah. a good time. And then he would start singing the next thing and then the GE team would pick it up until we had done like a little round of just yes. of singing that song. Yes. And there, we, we, there, it happened over at one of our overnights. We were all sitting around at lunch and which is like three o'clock in the morning. Yes. And just delirious. And it's, it was so absurd what was yes. going on. Like the, the extras were leaving because they didn't want to sit just it, it was falling apart and i was like del- this information was delivered to me and i was yeah. like we're having a good time <laughs> and it just we we broke out into song at lunch you know like oh, i love that and then it's just like we'll figure it out like we'll yeah. figure it out yeah. this is we're making a ski movie this is not you know we're not saving lives over here totally. like totally. this is and i think that there was a sort of like contagious kind of joy there. Mm -hmm. I will also say I came into set and into the production and team, you know, totally straightforward in that this is my first feature. I am doing two massive jobs, neither job I have done before. Uh I need you. I need you, you know? And I'm going, I'm not going to be dictatorial. I'm not going to be micromanaging. You know more than I do. Yes. So it's it was like really like a leading from behind thing. Like, how can I set you up to shine? Mm-hmm. How can I, how can I make sure that you have everything you need? Because you're the expert. That's why you're here. You you know what you're doing better than I ever could. I, the, my my, so much of what I was trying to do with, with lighting and, and Ryan's team was just get out of their way. Yeah. And yeah. They would show me, and I would make minor corrections, but it was like you see this better than I ever could. So totally. you, t- you tell me. And people were able to get excited about their own jobs as yeah. a result. You know, things like Neil going away and, and writing a whole new section of dialogue for himself because he and I just had like an exciting conversation yeah. about his role. And yeah. and I'm like, yeah, go do that. Bring it back to me. I'm sure it's, it's like the many hands make light work kind of a yeah. thing. And I was incredibly supported throughout the entire process. But I think that, if I had come into it with a different kind of attitude where I was trying to fake it, like I knew more than I did, it would right. have really annoyed people and rubbed them, rubbed them the wrong way. I think, I mean, yeah. I think I would have been rubbed the wrong way by, by a leader doing that. Right. Totally. Yeah. That makes and, sense. And, and so 
just by being like, I do, you know, the, the producing team was hugely elemental in, in prep in terms of setting up different, how thing how days needed to go, how things yeah. needed to go. You know, my, my AD Eddie vigil was, you know, militant about timing and how this works. And, but the way he spoke to me was so gentle and kind and the team really took care of me because they were aware of how much I was doing. Right. And and then I also fortunately had my right-hand woman, Colleen Gensman, who has... I worked with her for seven years on a, on a variety of different productions at you know various levels. And she was like the monitor queen. Yes. She was just always on monitor for me when I was on camera yeah. in particular. And she and I would talk so much in advance of every day and every scene, like knowing exactly what I was looking for in advance. Yeah. And so she could come and give me very specific feedback of what didn't happen or what did happen. Yeah. And we could, we could correct on the fly because she knew what I was looking so, for. So you, she was like an extension of the vision. And what does that mean you weren't doing so much playback when you were in front of the camera? Yeah, we didn't do any playback. That's huge. I mean, like, I feel like on this schedule and with the scope of the project, how can you? Like, what how can you? We really didn't have time. It was 23 days of absolutely wall-to-wall days. And the 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 way that the budget, I don't, I mean, I was not super involved in that piece of it, but I just knew that the producers would go hairy if we went over yeah. any days because of what it was triggering into overtime right, and how right. how that would fill in the rest of our weeks. And so yeah. making our days was, it felt like life or death making our days. Yeah, and, totally. and as a result, we didn't do any playback. It was just like, did it feel right? Did it feel like the thing that we had talked about in prep? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, so much of it was, went on that. And, yeah. and, and then as a result, like a lot of improv stuff ended up happening that would just crack us up and then we would adjust on the fly. And I think that because Andrew Ladd, who was my co-writer, was kind of acting as an ad hoc, you know, script supervisor as well right. as a producer. He he could adjust things on the fly as well with the writing, as well as having Colleen on monitor, just, you know, and then also just relationship management there to to further answer your question, you know, if, if to be somebody's scene partner and also their director right. is this really tricky relationship dynamic. And so right. sometimes I would have Colleen go give notes that I yes. could feel in the scene, but I didn't want to communicate because right, it right. would all of a sudden make me their, you know, boss, quote unquote boss. Yes, yeah. Which could um, then kill the vibe in the scene, which is like the exact opposite of what you want to do. Exactly. So I really like, yes, I have the credit of director and, but it was so collaborative. It was such yeah. a collaborative set. And yeah. right down to Ryan DeFranco, like catching plot holes and eyeline issues. And you know what I mean? It was... That's- it takes it. T- it takes a village, especially when you're really like does. on a mountain and in in the cold and the snow in the historic dump of snow of Tahoe. I I so one thing that drives me nuts in movies is when I'm like looking at a party and I'm like, this is not what a party feels like. This feels like like a, my dad's idea of a party. And right. the parties in this movie are real parties. Like the bars, the bars at this movie are real. Like they give real bars. And so to coordinate that and to make it feel effortless is, I'd say, a feat like equivalent to like an action sequence. You're coordinating so many extras and, and, and 
also a lot of the time, I mean, I think most of the time they're just like sitting there quietly. Like there's no music. There's no, there's, it's all fake. It's all movie magic. So can I talk, can you talk about like how you devised these scenes and how you created such like an organic party vibe on camera? Totally. I mean, I will say the Tahoe community in particular, like the, the, the extras that came out had a joie de vivre like I've never seen before. I think that's yeah. very specific to Tahoe. Like uh-huh. it's just really good people there having such a good time. Like that is in the ethos of their life is to have, have a good, good time. Ta- have a good exactly. time. Exactly. But it was important for me too. And I think part of it was making sure that the the extras felt like the the team was having a good time as well and they could feel feel our energy. And yeah. so the house party scene in particular, I was trying I I was having fun. I was having so much fun that, yeah. you know, I think DeFranco was having fun and Colleen was having fun. And it was such an it was just everyone on the team was the 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 crew was having a good time. And then pulling the extras in, we did try to do things like actually play music and yeah. then had it and have them just keep dancing. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they were so game for it. I mean, there's a scene where Tina and Cleo get into a fight and it's like an outdoor apres scene. Yeah. And we didn't have as many, ex- we didn't have enough extras show up that day. And as a result, I got on the megaphone and told them that what was going to happen was we were going to have to like switch clothes and reposition them uh-huh. like multiple times. And it became this joke. It was like a game and it, yeah. it felt like a birth, like a kid's birthday party or something. And we had hired a DJ for that day. And so he would like play the music. Everyone would fake dance, like dance to it. Then he would cut it and they would just keep dancing. And then I would be like, okay, we got it. I'm going to switch clothes with your neighbor. And they would like switch. And it was just this, it was the extras. The the people that came out yeah. were so there for it. And then I'll also just say like the locations that we had, all of them felt like we were pulling like rabbits out of a hat. Like the fact that Steven Sig, our producer, was able to go get a house for uh-huh. us to stay in, like because he called his buddy Hendy, who's a contractor who was in the middle of a renovation on this house and who called his client and said, hey man, what are the chances you'd be okay with them shooting steam inside of your house before we get it? Yes. The guy's like, sure. And we put tarps down and then snow inside this this couple's house and then steam yeah. in it. And I was trying to kind of in that scene play on like that old like Lords of Dogtown skateboard kind of influence with the yes. fisheye element where yeah. you're like, the camera's low, it was on a shoulder rig. It was like, it felt really like 90s grunge. Yes, yes, yes. In, you know, skate party inspired. And I think that people came with groups of their friends and they probably like were just having actual fun actual watching fun. this unfold because it was such an outrageous scene. Yes. To just watch come together. And yeah. same with the bars. I mean, we try, we gave everybody, everybody like fr- fake beer and they were yeah. like, jokes picking it but the extras like started doing stuff on their own too like this one extra he came and he was like i'm gonna be passed out on this thing and i'm gonna and then we my buddy's gonna stack beers i'm like okay great beer (laughs) thing like they were like building their own worlds like Uh, in and around us as well it was so much i mean it it, as we come to a a wrap up here it just is it's a 
the the fun of everyone the having a good time like just permeates through the screen when you're watching it and i think that it just goes to show and we really push on no film school to like, like celebrate the joy in filmmaking and the people in filmmaking and mm-hmm. like we're not saving babies we're creating stories and we need to be putting people and experience at the forefront of that. And that to- totally comes across. We we always wrap up our No Film School podcast with advice for emerging filmmakers. So, you know, now that you have your first feature under your belt, but a lot of other work under your belt too, what, what advice do you have for, for folks getting their start out? I think the biggest takeaway for me on this one is that it's okay to not know everything yeah. or anything (laughs) about some stuff. You you, you can't be an expert in any, in anything. If it's, you know, if you're just starting out and you're trying to figure things Mm -hmm. out and and sometimes that can just slow you down. You can get bogged in details, like listen to your gut, listen to your instincts and your unique voice and your unique take on things is going to be the most powerful thing anyway. So just trust that piece of it and don't be afraid to admit that you have no idea what you're doing because people will rally around you yeah. every and and want to support that kind of attitude. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. I'll give the listeners all the details they need. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. Congrats on the film. And thanks for geeking out about like the nuances of tapping into a very specific culture authentically. I think that gives us a lot of freedom, actually, as, as creators, as filmmakers, because we can be leaning into what we know. They say, write what you know. But I think that goes even further. Stay true to what you know, because otherwise you're going to take people out of it. And that's the last thing you want to be doing. The film Week Layers is available now on VOD. And if you're lucky, maybe you'll get to catch it on the mountain. And that's my calendar saying it's time for me to go. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast on all podcast platforms. And you can also follow us on social media at No Film School. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.